All right, welcome to a special edition of eBrown Bag. Uh, today we're not actually recording on the EMEA channel or the US channel or any other channel. We're actually just doing kind of a one-off thing where we're going to do a mock job interview. And so today uh, I'm going to be acting as the interviewer. So if you are not familiar with me, my name is Rebecca Fitzhugh, uh, and I'm going to be interviewing Tom. Right, so Tom Green decided to... Uh, a volunteer's tribute today to, to act as the, uh, the the poor the poor bastard that I'm going to be interviewing today. Uh, so, you know, as normal, if you have any feedback with this, please jump in on the conversation and tweet us at be brown bag and tune into our channels. Uh, we have a great session tomorrow on the Wednesday uh, night U.S. session. So, without further ado, uh, Tom, do you want to introduce yourself before we get started? Sure. I'm uh, Tom Green. I'm co I commonly host on the Wednesday V Brown Bag US channel. And there's been some discussion going around about how it'd be good to give back even more to the community. And job interviews are hard. There may be a lot of jobs, but there's not a whole lot of good, highly skilled interviewees. And I'm definitely not one of those. I, I am definitely bad at being interviewed. You can ask anyone who's ever had me on their podcast. Uh, I think some I did six months ago are still being edited. <laughs> so uh, I volunteered and said, hey, if anybody can can be a good candidate to get some constructive criticism, it'd be me. Cool. And so correct me if I'm wrong here, Tom, we're going to be looking for like an SE type position as the, the fake interview that we're doing today. And so you're looking to, to gain like a technical SE type role. Is that true? That's true. A lot of the uh, people that I've mentored and talked to are kind of trying to break into that pre-sales engineering or uh, technical SE role. So I figured that'd be a good place to start to help people get to that, that point. Cool. So just to warn you, uh, since you and I have coordinated logistics, but we haven't talked about the interview too much, I'm going to be asking you a mixture of technical and non-technical questions. Okay. So it is, all of it's based off of your specific resume. So Tom, uh, unfortunately for the listeners, Tom did send me his resume, and I did get a nice look at it. So I have an idea of some of the questions I should ask him. So a lot of them are um, VMware and uh, UCS and storage-based. You ready for that, Tom? Sure. <laughs> you're, uh, you're a team player here. Yeah. All right. And also invite anybody who watches this, uh, feel free to, to let me know if you've got any feedback, if it helps you, or if you'd like me to, to help pay this forward, because it'd be kind of great to, to also help someone else out too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this is one of those things where um, whenever I'm looking for a position or whenever I have like a big consulting gig or something on the line, uh, I always do like a, a mock interview. And, uh, I, you know, I recently just did this actually with a friend who, who moved across the country and he's right now interviewing for jobs in this new city that he lives in and last weekend we just sat down for an hour and I just asked him interview questions um, and he didn't he didn't do so great but that was great for me because I like to harass him that's the basis of our friendship so um, is, there, is there still time to back out or wait? okay let's <laughs> no, go no no I'm gonna I'm gonna be nice Tom it's gonna be like a slow it's gonna be I'm gonna ask easy questions and then get into some harder ones okay great all right so let's uh, pretend to be serious for a second. I'm going to be the interviewer. You're the interviewer, interviewee. Are you ready? Sure am. Let's go. All right. So the first question I like to ask everybody that I interview is, um, 
it's pretty you know straight and simple and right to the point. How did you prepare for today's interview? Well, a lot of times whenever I'm doing this interview process, I'll start on the website and I'll start looking on LinkedIn for how to uh, learn about the person. And that's what I did today with you. I looked at your LinkedIn and I looked you up on uh, line on different social media. Luckily, you're a very public person. So I was able to get a uh, feel for the kind of torture that I was going to be in for. Do you find any hot gossip? I found a lot of pictures of Beyonce. <laughs> uh, wow, I thought we were supposed to be oh. serious here. Uh, no, but that uh, would actually be the most appropriate answer that any interviewee could have given me there. I will accept that and move on to a different question. Uh, so, all right, so I read your resume. Um, can you please tell me a little bit about your experience? It looks like you have a plethora of experience with vSphere and other uh, VMware products. Can you just summarize uh, yeah. that for me? Certainly. For the uh, past 10 years, I've been working in IT, anywhere from small business to enterprise IT in a, a lot of different verticals between manufacturing, healthcare, finance and accounting, and a couple of VAR and contract type opportunities. Uh, from the very beginning, even whenever I was working desktop support, I had a great mentor who uh, through a book, uh, Scott Lowe's Mastering vSphere uh, on my desk uh, back in, I guess, the three, five days and said, hey, uh, we're going to buy new servers. Should we buy new one U rack mount servers like we're running now, or should we invest a little bit into this technology? Uh, it gave me the weekend to read it, and I kind of cried, but eventually got my head around virtualization as a topic, and uh, from there... Going from 3.5, I've worked with every major release and done upgrades and new installations all the way up to 6.5. Uh, that has gotten me with the ESXi and vCenter, and then there's ancillary technologies that you really need to know, the hardware, the storage, the networking. So I'm almost full stack or a jack of all trades when it comes to being able to talk uh, the entire stack and to know how to say uh, what I'm saying and tailor my response to the appropriate individual. So if I'm talking to a network person, I'm not going to talk to them about storage zoning. Uh, and I'm not going to expect them to understand what I mean. If I say, you know, I need something in 999, that might be the VLAN, but I would not need to be able to speak their language as well. Okay. So right now it looks like your job title is virtualization engineer three. Uh, can you give me just kind of a glimpse into the day of life of what that means. What, what are you doing every day? Sure. The uh, Virtualization Engineer 3 role is a technical lead and design implementation type role. So it's a lot of project-based work. Uh, a lot of stuff will come down from architecture and will come onto my uh, desk and say it's time to to do this planning, to do this uh, implementation and coordinating the different teams. Uh, a lot of times that architecture actually comes from me as I sit on an architecture board and I uh, go through that process with the enterprise architectures teams and the, the directors and make sure everything aligns what we need it to. But then after it comes goes through a design process, it comes to me and I'm actually coordinating 
either with juniors to implement, uh, with peers to delegate, uh, and with other teams to kind of project manage everything. Uh, so really it's kind of a project manager role as much as it is a technical role, knowing who to get what information to to effectively deliver the client's needs. So why go from this project manager slash architect slash jack of all trades role to an SE position? That's a uh, that's a good question. It may not be a natural fit at first. However, if you uh, kind of think of the the pace and the breadth of skills needed to be a technical SE, I feel like what I'm doing now really fits and moves into that role. Uh, I really enjoy the process of getting the design implemented and getting uh, everything on paper documented and handed off and having a deliverable that I can be proud of. The uh, part of the uh, current experience that I feel a little less fulfilled by is having to uh, keep pushing and going through the the process. And the technical SC, I feel like, would, would help me to be able to focus more on that deliverable and that educating the, the users and making sure I'm speaking the language to the right people and uh, leave something that can be well implemented. Okay. So I'm going to transition for a little bit into some uh, slightly technical questions. Okay. Um, so my first one, kind of jumping into some, because you, you do have a, a plethora of vSphere experience. So just kind of starting, starting easy and then getting a little bit more difficult as we go. Um, can, you, can you explain to me the difference between a type 1 and type 2 hypervisor? Sure. A uh, type 1 hypervisor is uh, sort of like what ESXi is. It's a, a very thin layer that sets close to the kernel, and it actually does the scheduling um, as a, a, a low-impact operating system, and it runs in memory. A type two hypervisor runs on top of a full operating system. ESX was one. Uh, I believe Hyper-V counts as one. VMware Workstation would be uh, another. Of It has to have a base operating system to run and do the scheduling, and then it handles the virtual machine uh, scheduling to the actual hardware components. You said ESX for type two. Do you mean ESX or GSX? Uh, I guess ESX, I would thought ESX, ESX was because it had its own um, uh, Linux VM that was running the scheduler. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to give you the answers here, Tom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, what's Never be afraid to be wrong. Just say it with authority, right? Are we giving feedback already? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, what's a VM kernel? The VM kernel is a communication between the the hypervisor and the hardware itself. It, go ahead. No, I was going to say, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, like a VM kernel port in for management, let's say it allows the hypervisor and the ESXi operating system to to do different management tasks and actually interact with the, the hardware itself. Uh, other types of VM kernels would be like a storage 
a VM kernel that could actually communicate to iSCSI or an NFS share uh, to, to do that kind of virtualized storage or vMotion or vSAN requires VM kernel ports to be able to do the, the scheduling between the hardware underneath the operating system. Okay. Um, so what is vSphere HA? Can you explain to me how that works? Yeah, vSphere HA is a function of a host cluster that can do uh, scheduling of resources and um, create a system where if a host fails due to hardware failure, power failure, fa powering off, it can spin the virtual machine up on a different host within the same cluster. And it does the scheduling through a concept of slots and reserving slot sizes for, say if you have the mission control feature powered on or activated, it will only let you start up enough virtual machines to fill the space that you have said, I wanna keep one host or 20% of the cluster resources or whatever uh, to power it on. So that if you tried to power on that next virtual machine, it wouldn't power on. So that you always know that your workloads in that uh, cluster will be protected. Okay, can you give me a little bit more technical detail of how it works under the hood? The virtual machines are obviously made up of compute and uh, memory, so CPU cores, and process, CPU processors, and um, RAM. So HA calculates a slot size based upon the amount of RAM and CPU of, I believe it's of the biggest uh, virtual machine in the cluster by default. Uh, and so that's how it determines if you need to, if you're doing admission control, uh, how it does, calculates that. And so it can only spin up as many virtual machines as can fit the, the largest slot. But you're able to override that with events features to size that's more effective for your cluster. And then for the actual clustering itself, uh, VMware uses uh, data stores on the back end for the ESXi host to be able to communicate uh, to a uh, HA, not really a partition, it's like a folder inside the data stores. And so if it loses management layer connectivity, so if there's a, one of the host is the master and the rest in the cluster are the, uh, subordinates and they um, are secondary, something like that. Slaves. They, slaves, okay. <laughs> Didn't know how PC we wanted to keep this. <laughs> you were, yeah, you were used to subordinates. I was like, that's very PC, Tom. I like it. Yeah, there we go. We got to ruin that PC. <laughs> the, um, so the, they do the election to decide which one is the master and which is the slave, which ones are the slaves. And then if the master can't communicate with one of the hosts, that it will try to communicate through that uh, data store. Then, then, then if it can't communicate there, the, the master will decide that that one's down and take whatever action you've set, whether it's power the machines on on another host or uh, leave them be or whatever you've set in your settings on your HA. Okay. Um, so in the advanced settings and regular settings. Then, based off of that, can you tell me the difference between a host failure and a host isolation? 
Sure. Um, host failure is a purple screen or just a complete and total loss of a host. And host isolation is uh, the management network can't communicate to the master. Sorry. So the uh, management network on a host can't communicate to the master in the node or in the cluster. Slow down a bit. And when that's the case, you have to have a, a rule set up to say if, if there is, if the host is out of management and is isolated on the management layer, what happens? Uh, so the virtual machines are still running and the hosts in the cluster know that because of the data store HA but it can't be communicated on the through the management layer. So there's settings of you can just power off the machines and power them on on another host forcefully, gracefully, or you can leave them running in an isolation event. Okay. So if vCenter is unavailable, what's the impact on HADRS and fault tolerance? That one's a tough one. Uh, HA still works with vCenter unavailable. Okay. Uh, DRS, I don't think it can because it needs VMware to do the uh, the cluster computations. And fault tolerance, I just flat out don't know how, how it affects that. It, it doesn't make sense to me that it would, but I would have to go and research that to see because... It doesn't make sense that it would affect it or it doesn't make sense that it would work? It doesn't make sense that fault tolerance would be able to work since it's vCenter that's doing that. I would assume vCenter is doing the control over the um, that mirroring. But then again, that, that seems like a really obvious point of, of failure for fault tolerance. Uh, so I, I guess if I were going to make a guess, then yes, it, fault tolerance would still work if vCenter was unavailable. But as I said, it's that's just a guess. That's, going off of gut instinct. Okay. Um, so what do, I mean, there's a laundry list here, so don't feel like you have to list every single one of them. Uh, but what are some of the things that distributed switches offer that standard switches do not? The, um, the best thing that they offer, a distributed switch would offer, would be making it very much harder for me to mess it up if I were configuring it. <laughs> so it, it, um, whenever you have, say, 20 hosts that you need to put the same switch configuration on, a distributed switch, you just make the change in one location, uh, and it will actually make that change on every one of those, say, 20 hosts. Whereas if you were doing a standard switch, uh, even if you were scripting it, there's still some room for error. But if you're going through and manually adding that uh, same port group or changing that VLAN, it's really easy to miss one. I think the biggest advantage or difference between the two is that it's a centralized place of management that pushes all of the uh, configuration changes or uh, new port groups to all the hosts that are attached to the distributed switch. Okay. What about in terms of just features? Uh, you can do private VLANs inside of a distributed switch, and you can't do that on a standard switch. Uh, there's network I.O. control that allows you to set limits on the different types of traffic going through the distributed switch. So in times of contention on the host, uh, it can throttle back, say, 
vMotion traffic. You could set that as a lower priority so that if there's a lot of contention in the um, network layer, that storage gets the most and then guess production traffic and then vMotion takes a little longer because it doesn't get as much bandwidth there. Um, The, those are like two of the bigger features, I think. Okay. Um, so last kind of VMware-centric question. Uh, I'm going to list a couple of components. In what order would you upgrade them? Okay. So let's say that our product that you are now an SC for does require uh, somebody to upgrade their vSphere infrastructure to a newer version in order to use our product. Okay. So you're advising the customer. Right, and they have ESXi, VMware Tools, vCenter Server, and Update Manager. What order should they upgrade them in? So VMware Tools, ESXi, Update Manager, and vCenter Server? Yes. So those are the four components? Yes, that's correct. Um, you update vCenter Server first. Then you update ESXi because your ESXi version can't exceed your vCenter version. Uh, but your vCenter version can be up level to your ESXi version. Uh, then you would update. I may have that backwards. I may want Update Manager because then you can use Update Manager to update ESXi. So I'm reasoning this through in my head. So yeah, my final answer is going to be vCenter Server, Update Manager, ESXi, VMware Tools. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so moving into a couple of storage questions. Can you tell me what a SCSI reservation is? A SCSI reservation is a uh, communication sent from the host to a uh, SAN in order to get I.O. I'm not very confident in saying that, sounds like, but okay, so that's when, the best I can do about a SCSI reservation. Can you, can you tell me when SCSI reservations happen? I'm sorry, I can't, I can't, get, can't get deep into storage on that level, I guess. Okay. Um, so you mentioned that you've done some, some architecture type stuff in the past. Uh, can you... In, can you compare and contrast for me single initiator, single target zoning over single initiator, multi-target zoning? So a single initiator, multi-target zoning is the, a requirement for sharing a, of storage line to multiple ESXi hosts. Um, everything's going to be kind of related to VMware in my mind right now. Okay. Uh, whereas whereas a uh, single point zoning would be, say, if you had a Windows server that needed access to this one LUN and nothing else would need to talk to it, then you would do an initiator between that one HBA and that one uh, storage target. Okay, can you give me... Anything that's not VMware-centric, like why you would do one over the other? What are the benefits of doing one over the other? Um, if you're doing 
doing kind of active passive cl uh, clustering on a, a host, or not host, sorry, on a Windows SQL server. Uh, sometimes you would need to have a LUN or a series of LUNs, depending on how your data set up for SQL, able to be shifted from one SQL server to another. So you would need to be able to have two different um, targets, right? Are you asking me or telling me? Were you saying something? I thought you said something. No, sorry. sorry. Um, are you familiar with the concept uh, of... And Go ahead. Good. Go ahead and finish, sorry. No, I'm getting some static here. Sorry, that was the... That's for the awkward portion of the, the interview. <laughs> well, I'm also on hotel Wi-Fi, so it could very well be me. Um, are you familiar with what an RSCN is? With Fiber Channel? No, I'm not. Okay. Um, so, unfortunately, the, uh, the depth into the Fiber Channel and the, the storage line uh, that's definitely an area that I need to to be become more strengthened in, and to uh, to dig deeper into. Okay, um, so I noticed that you had quite a bit of UCS uh, experience on your resume. So I'm going to ask you a couple of UCS questions. Um, mm -hmm. So the first one is: Can you tell me a little bit about Fabric Interconnect operating modes? Just anything you know. Fabric interconnect operating modes. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, well, I actually was just talking about this to somebody and I've blinked on it. No pressure, Tom. <laughs> yeah. No pressure. We're just being we're just we're, being live stream for yeah, the world. We're just recording this. There's no pressure. <laughs> so, like, if I say in host mode. Oh, oh, yeah, that like host mode. Yeah. Okay. So there's like a couple of different modes. Can you tell me about those modes? Um, I know that the the way that we've in host mode is the way that the ones that I've actually been working with and and aided in the implementation of Zena has been set up. Uh can't can't talk about any of the others. Okay, so you said you're using in host mode? Yes. Can you tell me anything about that besides that's what you're normally using? The um I'm just completely blanking on this. I know that all of the, whenever the virtualization of the the VIX and the VHBAs, the, in particular, the VIX are coming through, uh, it's spoofing the um, a different MAC addresses coming on it. So depending on if you're trying to uh, find the, Whenever you're trying to trace a, say, a virtual machine on a um, that's running inside of your UCS domain from a switch on the outside of the uh, Fabric Interconnects, it always looks like the traffic is going back to one of the uh, 
sync aggregation channels on the the fabric interconnect as if it was one big host as opposed to it being a, a switch so it's not doing like spanning tree or not doing uh, any of the other uh, switch functions you'd see in like a nexus uh, this is all just like like it's going to one end host i guess okay that's called that um so how do you connect the chassis to the fiber interconnect and then part two of that question is what are the considerations when you connect them so in the back of the chassis there are some um, io modules or fax fabric extenders that plug into the um the fis and you'll have a pair of fis and there'll be a pair of um these fabric extenders and you can't cross the streams to uh to quote a great documentary i watched once <laughs> uh you have to always make sure that your a side fabric modules or io module stays on the a um fi and the b side stays in the bfi so you you have to keep the fabric separated on the um the different interconnects okay anything else uh, the number of i know you can the number of connections that you run from the back either 10 or 40 or however many gig connections you run up to the back uh, if it's 40 gig i think you can do four per io module it'll let you aggregate the amount of bandwidth that can go to any of the blades in the chassis okay uh, so it's not just a straight one-to-one -one. you can actually give if you have one blade that you want to give 160 gigabit per second to you can not really sure why but you could um what what's a service profile and what should be in a service profile Service profile is the personality of a server, for uh, for lack of a better term. It includes uh, the UUID, the IP address for the KVM and management components, uh, any VNICs or VHBAs, um, the boot order, the BIOS settings. Uh, can control. It has the RAID configuration. Essentially, it is what you would traditionally think of as a server. It's not in a UCS chassis. So uh, it's everything a server is except for the compute and memory storage. So you could say it sort of uh, abstracts the personality of the server? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like a virtualization layer on top of the actual hardware. And it can be repointed that, you know, if you have a, a server, it can actually go to any... Uh, hardware within the UCS domain, if as long as the boot, if you're doing boot from SAN or or some sort of way to manage the uh, the actual operations of the server itself, it can be pointed to other equipment. It doesn't really matter what the end use end equipment is, and that can change or it can just be swapped out. Okay, cool. Uh, are you familiar with the C series for UCS? Yes, the rack mount. Yes. Can you tell me the different ways that the C-series rack mount servers can operate? I'm sorry, you broke up there. The difference between the C-series and what? Can you tell me the different ways that they operate for the C-series rack mount? There's two, two different ways. Um, 
is that being connected into FIs or operating independently? Um, yeah, exactly. So standalone yeah. or UCS managed. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, and then you can control. It actually has its own. If you're doing a standalone, it has its own sort of like UCS manager light version, where you can make the profile inside of it, if I remember correctly. Okay. So we're an API first platform. So can you can you tell me what an API and or SDK is and how they can be used? An SDK is a software developer kit. And an API is a I can't define that one necessarily, but it's it's kind of like a hook into the application itself. So, an so application, a uh, software developer application programming interface. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> application programming interface. That's exactly what I was going to say. I thought so, yeah. Thank you. Um, I was getting there. <laughs> See, so your the SDK has the tools uh, required to be able to develop a um, function or an application that will uh, can interact with the developer's API. And it can be RESTful APIs as a... Uh, term I hear a lot of, and as far as I know, that is whenever the API is able to be called over ports 80 or 443. Uh, so there's no, no special firewall rules that need to be implemented because, uh, to my understanding, before that was a a big thing, it was hard to make sure that your application could easily be communicated with if there's strict firewall or uh, security rules, which is kind of the, the world I live in in healthcare right now. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so you would develop something using the SDK to to communicate with whatever the platform is. Okay. So API. So, you know, like one of the things that I struggle with is that everything in tech changes all the time and so quickly. It, it's hard for me to to keep to keep current, right? To kind of stay educated. So my question to you is, how do you stay current in tech? The, there's a really big tech community that you're not too far removed from an expert in anything. If you sign on to Twitter and start following, say even your main disciplines, my main discipline is VMware. So if you go in and you start following the big names at VMware or you know, some of your friends who may work there, it's really easy to start finding their friends or getting introductions from them to get involved with other people and start reading their blogs or start looking into um, into that world. So let's say containers. It's, that's come something that's almost foreign to me, but not quite. So it's something that I'm starting to look into and to read into. And luckily, because I am involved with Fee Brown Bag, or I, and even before that, I watched a lot of them, I had access to these experts who are willing to share their knowledge and share their time. So listening to a lot of podcasts, reading blogs, and doing the uh, live Wednesday webinars on V Brownback. Uh, cheap plug. Cool. So uh, things joining, that I don't know. So. <laughs> so joining, if you if you were to join a company, uh, you know our team of SDs is very very close knit, uh, and they work very well together. Um, so what would you be bringing to this close knit team? What do you have to offer? 
a inability to say no when there's something that I can help with and <laughs> somebody needs in, the help. Did you say an inability to say no? Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to make uh, sure I heard that correctly. Yeah, but if there's something that I can help with and somebody needs the help, I won't let someone flounder. Uh, mentoring has been a huge part of my life, a huge part, part of my career. Before I even got started in tech, I was an accountant. And without that first guy to give me a chance and to train me and mentor me, I couldn't be here today. And so if I see somebody floundering or see somebody who needs help on something I can help with, I'll always reach out and try to go the extra mile to help them. So I have a big sense of community and a feeling of, you know, we can all help each other because we are all on the same team and same page working toward the same goal. Uh, so that's a, uh, that's a pretty big strength I think I bring to the table. Excellent. Cool. Uh, I did notice that you actually did have a degree in economics. I was going to ask you about that, but now I know you were an accountant in a previous life. So that's good for me. I have some tax questions for you offline. Um, Real estate. Ask ask me anything you want to know about the process of buying, selling, or renting a house. That I'm that not, was my domain. I'm not adult enough for that business. Um, so you you brought up mentoring others, right? And I did notice that your resume specifically mentions that you actively mentor others. Can you describe to me what that mentoring process entails and what that means to you? Well, the mentoring process means really everything, and it's probably the most impactful and important part of what I do day to day. And I've got a, a number of people that I consider myself actively mentoring. And it's different for each of them, but it always involves making a connection and helping them with tough love sometimes see their potential and to really elevate somebody who wants to meet me and put some effort into it. So I'm not going to give people opportunities, but it means the world to me to be able to say, you know, this person who was a help desk person is now a Microsoft educator. And that happened over the year and a half, two years that I've known him and he'd come to me asking for help or I would check in with him or I would help him through some personal problems. And then he would be able to get to the next milestone in his career and his his life would be a little better and a little uh, more fulfilled. And so that really helps me get up in the morning knowing that I'm helping uh, these people through their careers the same way I was getting help through mine. Okay. They can go anywhere from helping with training and certification to developing a curriculum of, I currently work help desk support and I want this job. Um, how can I do it? And also to doing sort of like what you're doing for me now and giving uh, some technical questions and some mock interview at the level where um, I think that they need to be. So sorry, I've fooled you into being my mentor now, apparently. I reject this label. Um, <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like if that was Little definitely tear. a joke. If you've ever read my blog, I'm, I'm sorry for that joke. Um, Okay, so as an SC, you're going to be interacting a lot with customers, right? You're trying to, 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 to sell them a product and to show them the engineering and basically to be the, the technical uh, SME, right, for, for your, for your uh, account manager, right, for, for the actual sales guy. So 
I noticed right now you're working for a hospital system, and in the past it looks like you maybe have had a previous life in, as an SE. Can you tell me how you manage your difficult customers today? So just obnoxious, completely difficult customer. How do you deal with that? Uh, a lot of the time you have to, I don't want to say kill them with kindness. That sounds really kind of mean, but. <laughs> you trying to kill people? Please don't. Yeah. So maybe that's not the best thing to say in an interview. Our lawyers Just go ahead would not appreciate bit. that. Yeah. <laughs> but but when you're dealing with someone, my current client said, if you're looking at my, my job now in, in the healthcare industry are, um, database administrators, application administrators, and uh, Windows and Linux administrators. Uh, so as, as everyone knows that there's a wide variety of personalities. And whenever you're dealing with someone who's extremely hard to deal with, there are two ways that I, I handle that. One is I try to ignore the needling and figure out what the true crux of the issue is. And then I also make sure that I have some backing and some support of documentation or you know, if someone's arguing that something is wrong, it's it's easy to, to bring up a book of, well, here's why these decisions were made and this is why it, it's working. So if you're, as long as your work is good and your intentions aren't to get it catty or get into politics, I found that a lot of these things kind of come out in the, in the wash that uh, you'll you'll just have to be nice, play nice, get the information that you need, uh, and then you have to be able to draw a boundary of saying, "You, I've gotten you everything that you need to to help with this. I can't get into a constant back and forth arguing about something, and just sometimes you have to be the bigger person and and step aside and maybe not win the fight." in order to retain the client or to keep someone happy, but knowing that you've given everything you can, you, you've left it out, all out on the field. You know, you've given them all the information you could. Okay. Uh, so I have just, just a few more questions for you. Um, you know, kind of again, staying with this non-technical theme that we have going on at the moment. Um, what's been your greatest accomplishment thus far in your career? I think um, <laughs> that was a long silence. That was a long pause. I was I was thinking. I was taking a moment to think about the greatest. Just to really like uh, breathe in your career thus far. Yeah, to to let my entire tech life come before my eyes. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that I'm the most proud of, I guess, is that I'm completely self-taught. Uh, the only course that I've ever taken was the one required for the VCP, uh, and other than that. I have dug in and used my own resources and grown from an accountant who knew how to put a web key into a uh, laptop. And that was all the qualifications needed to start as a desktop support person where I was an accountant up to you know, multiple high level VMware certifications and being considered uh, for the possibility of being an expert uh, SME, as you were saying, for for the account executive and for account teams. So honestly, if you look at that, the the fact that I've been self-taught and 
driven myself the entire way. I, I've got over, I guess, 23 certs because of just trying to get down and study and figure out what's next and what's new. Uh, so that's something I'm, I'm pretty proud of. And I guess another one is the, going back to the mentoring thing. I've kind of brought somebody from very uh, rough bringings to making them a very, very good VMware technician. And I've seen them then go on to uh, greener pastures to make you know, more money than I am because but both of their area and just because they really took off and they really got into a very specialized area uh, beyond where I could help them. But knowing that they were coming in from a non-technical field as well and seeing myself in them and helping them get their skills up and then watching them fly out the window, that was very proud. That's something I'm very proud of too. Awesome. So last question for you. Um, let's say you, we, we extend an offer to you. You work for us for say two, three, four years. Where do you see going after? Where, where do you see yourself going after this? Right after this SE role, then what? Um, I think the uh, next logical step in my career is getting into architecture, and um, maybe even greater than like pre-sales architecture as much as. Um, also, being able to help shape and and work as a architect in the greater sense of uh, the an enterprise as a whole or as a, a company as a whole, being able to uh, to get more maybe into the management or to the um, product design level, product product management is probably the better word of knowing how it works well enough to be able to to help shape that future of a product would be really, really cool. Cool. So that's all the questions I have for you. Do you have any questions for me about the company or about the position or anything? Uh, sure. Uh, is the position uh, one in which I could keep a, a big community presence and kind of keep up doing different podcasts or different uh, speaking engagements that I uh, normally have been able to keep up. Yeah, absolutely. So we'd love you to be as community forward and as community present as you can be. Um, now, there will, of course, be times where there'll be customer meetings or something that would that would take precedence. But uh, in, in the large scheme of things, yes, we want you to stay as active in the community as possible. That's great. Um, yeah, it's very important for me to be able to to keep active and to, to keep getting out and talking and helping all these, as many people as I can. Absolutely. So, um, what is your favorite thing about this uh, company and doing what you do every day? I like that every day is different. Um, so for me, I tend to get bored very easily uh, <laughs> in all things, but especially like at work, if I go into work and every, every Monday is going to be the same as every other Monday past, uh, you know, and, and every Tuesday is going to be the same. Um, so I very much look forward to the fact that every single day is different and that pushes me and challenges me to learn and to be, to grow as a technologist. That's awesome. I guess one last question is, you know, the flip side of that, nowhere is perfect. Uh, <laughs> is there something that you would 
change or if, if you were king of your company for a day, would you... Excuse me? Uh, king? If, if you were royal person <laughs> of your company uh, for a day, what would you change? Hmm, that's a good one. I mean, obviously, I'd uh, give everyone a pay increase, but, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I don't, I don't know what I would change. I think that's a very good question on your part, Tom. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a breakneck speed, but that's to be expected if you join a company like ours that's very fast-paced and growing and, uh, you know, young. I guess the thing that I would change is, as much as I love not knowing what every single day is going to be, I would like some percentage of predictability, <laughs> which is very, con you know, contradictive to what I said in my last answer. But I would like, you know, like a 10% chance of knowing what my schedule is going to look like for the next week to kind of have a, a little bit more of a, a balance between work and life. Yeah, I've heard that that's kind of a common theme along startups or younger companies is you, you do what you got to do. Yeah, but it's also on you, right? Uh, you know, and, and that's where I will absolutely claim guilt here is um, I, I like to work. I am a bit of a workaholic, and so I don't always do the best job of scheduling myself and, and scheduling time to myself and time off um, because there's no one's forcing me to work 80 hours a week. Right, no one's expecting you to work more than your forty at all. Um, so it is also a little bit on you, as well as it is on me as your manager to ensure that you're getting a proper balance. So it's also on you to to control your schedule. So if I schedule you for a seven p.m. meeting, it's on you as well to push back to be like, no, 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 I can't do that. Cool. Yeah, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Does it? Um, Cool. Any other questions? I think that covers it for me. It gives me a pretty, uh, pretty good view of the good and the bad and all the other facts of life for, for yeah, working <laughs> Wonderful. Great. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. I will uh, follow up with you in the very near future. By very near future, do you mean right now? Yeah, I mean right now. Let's talk. Uh, all right. <laughs> So interview over, Rebecca and Tom commence. Um, what do you think? How do you feel like you did? The I tried not to feel my way too much around the interview, the technical parts that I really didn't know. Okay. Uh, and, and it's really hard to gauge, even though you and I are, are pretty good friends, oh, I guess, frenemies. <laughs> we're, we're frenemies. We are, we know each other. <laughs> yeah, we. We send funny pictures occasionally. Yeah, we just send um, gifts to each other. That's the basis of our friendship. Yeah, but um, <laughs> it was really hard uh, to to do the research, like know exactly where you're going to be coming from. I didn't know if you're going to hit me with like VCAP stuff or if you're going to hit me with softballs. <laughs> I tried, and to I'm kind of glad you did both. <laughs> I do. Well, I, I tried to keep it um, technical. Uh, I tried to not go too architect on you, um, you know, and I tried to keep it easy to intermediate level questions. I personally don't feel like I asked you anything that was a 300 level, expert level type question. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and I tried to do that on purpose because, uh, you know, based off of your resume, I felt like that's what was the best suited um, type questions would be like the intermediate type level. Right. Yeah, and there's some stuff that you asked that I, sh I, I really did know. I was just th <laughs> throwing it for the podcast. Sure. No, but like, but no, uh, no, but I mean, there's totally things that I've known in interviews that I just could not even tell you. I, I, I did an interview once when somebody asked me, what are the, for like a, a common three tier application, what are the three tiers? And <laughs> I totally blanked. And it was probably the easiest question I got in the entire interview, but that was the one that I was like, uh, web front end and database and a third one that I can't remember, which is just application <laughs> server. It's the easiest one, you know, and, and, but I complete, I completely shit the bed on that. Um, but you know, so there's always a level of nerves, right? Mm -hmm. There's always going to be like the one question that it's probably the easiest one that you're just like, what, why would they ask me something this easy? I, 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 I what, uh, and you just can't, you just can't get the answer out. Mm. Um, I thought I was going to nail you with some of those UCS questions and you did better on some of the UCS questions than I thought you would. So for example, like connecting the chassis to the fiber interconnect and then like the C series. I really thought I was going to get you on the C series rack mount and you got that one. Um, not, not you didn't get as deep as like some of the, as the, as an answer you could have, but you answered it at least at a very minimal level. Mm -hmm. Um. So I was I was I was I was surprised with that. But then some of like the other ones, um, with like VM kernel, you weren't wrong, but it, it felt like you weren't confident in your answer at all. Yeah the the difficulty with stuff like that comes with thinking quick on your feet and being able to say exactly what you want to say quickly and clearly and sound like you're an expert with it on something that I have actually literally explained what a VM kernel and what a VM kernel port does four or five times in this calendar year. But whenever I'm setting, you know, whenever you're in the hot seat and you're asked that question, it's like, well, was I really right those four times? Yeah. So, so it, it was second guessing my confidence in that one. Yeah. I mean, so like that's, for me, like that was the biggest takeaway in this interview was like um, there were some slight technical inaccuracies throughout, but nothing that was so majorly wrong that I was like, what the heck, right? It was just like little things was like, well, and I could have just argued with you, but I didn't see the point. Um, mm -hmm. But from like the big picture, like the biggest thing that I saw was you just, it didn't feel like you were confident in yourself. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of answers that were given in the sing song, raise your voice and in tone inflection at the very end of the sentence because you weren't 100% sure. And there was a couple of times too where you actually, you said right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like you were asking me whether that was the right answer or not and I wasn't going to give anything away. Mm -hmm. um, right. Which. I just said it there. Yeah, which is. Kind of funny because um, when I do when I when I actually do real interviews, I do actually give people the answer back of that that I'm looking for. Or I'll say, "Well, you got this right," but I was actually looking for a little bit more technical detail, as in blah blah blah. But today, I wanted to purposely just be silent and let you uh, hang yourself up or be awesome, right? One of those two. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it definitely seemed like the confidence was the biggest thing. So, yeah, there's a couple of answers, especially um, some of the technical answers. Well, technical and non-technical. There was a couple of things that you would say something, and then it felt like you would question yourself, and then sort of sidestep, and then answer again. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What do you What do you feel like, Tom? I definitely don't disagree with it. It's been a while since I've really given a good interview, and it's very easy to kind of get caught up in in your own head. I, I assume I'm not the only person in the world who second guesses themselves in an interview situation. Oh no, I'm I'm totally terrible in interviews. <laughs> I get like really self conscious about halfway through. I'm like, wait a minute, what kind of ridiculous stuff could I already say? Right, because I was trying to make sure I've got that tick now that I'm saying right every time. Uh, yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is, like, um, one of the things that I, I look for in an interview is, are you going to fit in on this team, regardless of your technical knowledge, right? Because, like, technology is, if you have all this amazing knowledge, that's awesome. But at the same time, if you're one of those people who's willing and can learn, to me, I'd rather take somebody who doesn't know as much but is willing and able to learn than somebody who knows everything and doesn't want to evolve and change, right? Um, so one of the big things that I look for is do you just fit the mentality of the company uh, and, and I feel like you would hit on that a little bit but you never really let your personality shine through and it might have been nerves that might have just been the fact that you knew that we were recording you today but like at the very beginning you made some joke about like yeah I googled you and I saw your Beyonce memes and gifts and I thought that was really funny you know, and I, mm-hmm. and, and I know that's partly because you actually know me, but that was part of like, I did my research and now I'm going to make like a little joke that can be between you and I, right? Like, mm-hmm. Hey, I Googled you. Yeah. I noticed you like NASCAR, make a NASCAR joke. Ha ha. Let's be friends. Right. Or, Hey, Rebecca, you love Beyonce. Let's make a Beyonce joke and be friends. Um, and then later in the interview too, you said something and you went, or as I heard on a documentary or something like that. And I thought that was funny. Um, so it was just kind of like letting those little two moments of your personality, cause you are kind of goofy, right? And that's why you and I right. it off, um, it, it is to let, let your personality shine through. Yeah. In, in my real world view, I, and you can ask people who know me cause it annoys them. Everything I watch on a screen is a documentary. <laughs> but um, that's kind of funny though. And I think that like the person in, uh, Parks and Rec, the Andy character, then went off to another galaxy to become Star-Lord. Yes. So I just see every actor is actually the same character in every movie, and it makes the world way, way more enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, so and Andy Dwyer in, in, in the Guardians of the Galaxy. I could see that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. like, yeah. That's so just for, inside. It's for me personally, I would rather hire somebody that I'm going to not necessarily be friends with, but be able to get along with for eight hours a day, right? So we can get along, we can have that camaraderie, and you're willing to learn and you can grow and you want to learn and grow. I would take that over somebody who knows everything and has the personality of a rock. So you'd rather not have a, uh, a storage admin who knows SCSI reservations, but... I am absolutely oh. not going to say anything about storage admins here, Tom. Uh, there are some <laughs> fantastic storage admins. You watch your mouth. Um, but, but you, well, you, well, you, I didn't... 
I didn't get through the second half of that, but uh-huh. only sit and um, sleep. Yeah, here you go ahead. I'll stop <laughs> digging the hole. <laughs> yeah, you're not winning this one. But yeah, but I mean, like, but I mean, we've all known those people who write who know everything but are willing to share nothing, right? Or people who know a lot of things but have the no personality, right? I'd rather have somebody who can get along, be a part of the team, fits into the team, uh, and wants to learn and is willing to learn, right? So don't be afraid to let your personality shine through. Um, and, and, and have more confidence. Did you like the little stinger us put at the end there of what would you change if you were royal person of the world? Yeah, I was ignoring you, but yeah. <laughs> I was trying, I, you're like, I could tell a couple of times you were trying to get me off my game as pretending to be a professional interviewer. Um, so I was trying to, to hold it together. Hmm. I've, I actually had to get the job I currently am now. I've actually used that question in in a real interview, uh, and it's interesting because it does pull somebody out of professional interviewer mode and into a relatable person mode. Yeah, I mean, like um, you know, some panel that I was on recently, they actually asked. Uh, they actually didn't make it in the final questions. Uh, for the panel, but one of the things that they were joking about asking was something like, um, would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses, right? And it's totally this ridiculous question, but then we started, as we started talking about it, we really started to understand how the other person thinks. And I was the only person, I was like, I'd rather fight a hundred ducks that are, or another, a hundred horses that are duck-sized rather than fight one massive horse-sized duck. Um, so it was, you know, kind of goofy, but that was just one of those things that kind of just brought up a conversation, and then we started kind of joking, and, but you kind of get into the mind of how, into the other person's mind and how it works. And there's no w- one right answer there, by the way. Well, yeah, there is, but we're, we're not going <laughs> to, we won't get into that. Obviously, it's a hundred duck-sized horses, but whatever. Um <laughs> But cool. You have any other thoughts or, or feedback or tell me to, to be a meaner interviewer, a nicer interviewer, anything? Be meaner to other people. Not but you. Be nicer to me. Yeah. No problem. No, I think uh, if anybody's listening to this, uh, I think the best takeaway is the confidence. Absolutely. Right? Like the uh, confidence in knowing it saying things like I know I even said when I had a question wrong I said if you say it with confidence it's okay yeah you actually said in the middle of the interview and I was like mm, maybe don't say that but um yeah yeah but there were there were things that you had said that were technically correct and I knew that they were technically correct but I just didn't believe you you know yeah, it's, it's it's all a confidence game honestly yeah absolutely so that was the big thing was just be relatable and have some confidence absolutely Cool. Anything else? Thanks. Uh, I uh, I think I'm good. I hope that it really helps some people. And and like I said, you can contact me uh, at tbgree00, and I'd be more than happy to to put you through the same lovely uh, <laughs> experience that I just went through. Well, you are absolutely a uh, gentleman and a scholar for volunteering to to be grilled. Uh, and recorded being grilled uh, for an hour. So thank you very much, Tom. Uh, Thank you very much.
All right, great. Well, I'm going to go ahead and end the recording. So thank you to uh, anybody who listened in. And, of course, feel free to, uh, to give any feedback. All right. This concludes uh, the special edition of the Brown Bag. All right. Bye. Bye.